So hi and welcome to another session of Automation uh, 101. Um, one of the insights that I've had in the past shows that we've done is that automation solutions can fail. And typically they don't fail because it's a bad decision by the laboratory to invest uh, in automation um, or because the system itself is necessarily a poor system. But more often than not, they fail because of the people component. And in particular, because they fail to bring the people with them along in terms of the journey. Because as we know, and we said before, moving from a manual process to an automated process, you know, results uh, in significant change. And so our expert today is not a uh, lab automation expert by any stretch of the imagination. She is, however, a um, people expert, I would say. She's been a change champion and has led many change uh, initiatives across many organizations that we're all familiar with. She's coached uh, multiple CEOs, leaders, and leadership teams, again, across, you know, not just in the U.S., but globally as well. So I'd like to introduce Carol McLeisot. Welcome, Carol. Thank you for having me, Alex. I'm excited to join one of your episodes. Well, it's great to have you here. And I, I think, you know, we've known each other now, we were saying earlier, probably for over a decade now. Yeah. And I think that whole time, I've never had to say your last name. So. <laughs> That's the most terrifying thing. It, it doesn't really look was. like it could be real. <laughs> Before I was like, I was trying to practice how to pronounce it last name. Uh, that's hilarious. Well, my husband says he still gets dizzy when he looks at it. So don't feel bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we'll just stick with Carol then. Perfect. <laughs> it's easier. Okay. So, I mean, Carol, like I said, we've been talking a lot about um, automation solutions. And in particular, like I said earlier in my introduction, a lot of times, you know, solutions fail because of the people uh, component. And I'm, I'm a big believer that, you know, here's a problem. If we understand the why of the problem, then, you know, we can come to the, uh, we can find the right solutions in, in, in that respect. So based on your experiences that you've had across many different industries, what would you say would be the top reasons why people resist change? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, and I agree with you. When we can understand the root cause of something, then we can unpack it um, <clears throat> and try to address what those core issues are. You know, I think the reasons that people resist change are many, um, and they're going to be unique to the individual in the situation. But three that I see most frequently um, are, are the ones I thought that I, I would share. Um, the first one is that change means very simply disrupting the patterns of how we currently operate our habits and our routines um, are going to get upended in some sense, whether it's in a small way or a large way. Um, and whether we have good habits or bad habits, um, they are the patterns of our, of our ways of operating are like muscle memory. We do the same things again and again and again in similar ways, consciously or unconsciously. And so change means unworking that muscle memory and teaching those muscles to do something new and different. And it's really easy to just fall back into default patterns of behavior. Um, and so that disruption of patterns, I think, is one reason. You know, we just get comfortable with the way we do things. And so there's an element of resistance. Why do I have to change things? This has worked. Um, I think the second reason is around fear, especially depending on how large scale the change might be. Um, you know, implementing automation, that may be a totally different way of working that your customers um, are introducing to their teams. And so sometimes people just get afraid of change that, you know, what if I can't adapt to it? 
Um, what if it calls for knowledge or skills or experience that I don't possess? Um, what if I just don't like the new way of doing things? You know, again, we're comfortable with the, with what we know, um, even if it's not satisfying or even if it doesn't deliver the results we want. Comfort and familiarity can be a, a big draw or a pull back to doing things the way we did things before. Um, and I'd say, you know, that that fear can produce anxiety and self-doubt and just by nature, anxiety and self-doubt create resistance. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't necessarily need to do this or let me delay it as long as I possibly can um, or let me fake it and let everyone think that I'm doing it until I get caught. Um, And then just the last one that comes to mind on why people resist change is change fatigue. Um, There is so much change happening around us in society, politics, work, COVID, um, technology, social media, everything is constantly changing. And I think just in general that that creates fatigue for people. Uh, but also from a business perspective, I see in large organizations a frequency of reorganizing, a frequency of changing strategy, a frequency of, of um, shaking up who's on the team or what you're responsible for, downsizing that creates change. In smaller organizations, I work with a lot of startups. Um, the change is constant in the first stage or two of, of the business life cycle as you figure out how do we need to operate? Do we have the right resources and tools and people? And are we getting enough business? Um, and so as startups navigate their way to success through their life cycle, they're constantly changing and the change can be rapid. What they did last week, change it up the next week. And so people can only, I think, absorb a certain amount of change. It can't be constant and it can't be everywhere. There needs to be sort of a cadence to it so that people and and a logic to it so that people can adapt. Um, And so they just simply get tired of it and it can be sort of a, here we go again. Um, And that can turn them off. That's really interesting. I think, you know, your, perhaps your first point is, is all encompassing in that, you know, I have said repeatedly that we are creatures of habit. Yeah. And anything that pushes us out of that, then all of a sudden, you know, it could be because, you know, we're, we're, we're scared of what the change will bring. As you said, yeah. I haven't even considered, to be honest, uh, just being tired of all the change. And, and yeah. Directly, you know, change is constant and it's whether it's in our professional lives and our private lives as well. Yes. And uh, absolutely. People do. Yeah. Get, I think they get fed up to a certain extent. Right, right. You know, I, I worked with a startup company. They were probably about two and a half, three years in when we started working together. And the CEO, the founder, had never really had management experience in a larger organization. Uh, he had never really been responsible for setting strategy, enrolling the enterprise, building a leadership team. And so good for him that he acknowledged he needed some assistance. Um, and one of the things that he had been doing with the best of intentions is reading almost every strategy and leadership book that was out there. And he kept bringing them into his leadership team and he would say, OK, Patrick Lencioni, the five dysfunctions of a team. This is what we're going to read this month. Let's apply it. Let's do it. And so they would get rolling on it for a month or two. And then he would have completed another book and he'd say, no, 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 throw that Patrick Lencioni stuff out. <laughs> Let's go with this model. And so it pretty soon became this eye rolling thing for the leadership team of when are we going to settle into a productive set of habits and dynamics that work for us and deliver the outcome. And he he just couldn't get into a pattern that worked. And so it was disruptive, constant change. And there really weren't any patterns. It was just people got fatigued with it. 
soon as we start developing a habit, he's going to change it. Now what? And so by the third book of the month club, he was the the team was like, oh, we're not even listening to him. Brilliant guy, great intentions, but no one was taking up anything he was suggesting anymore. Yeah, and, and that's fair enough. And I suppose so when you have all this change, you obviously you start to resist to a certain extent. Yes. And I yeah. think sometimes you might do that, you know, in a very obvious way and sometimes in a not so obvious yeah. manner. So if I'm uh, an astute manager or, or, or leader, whatever it may be, and I'm, I'm here in the lab and, you know, like I said, I've gone ahead and introduced this solution, what yeah. would be the you know, almost the telltale signs that I need to look out for and think, you know what, I'm looking at my team now and I think I've got a problem on my hands here. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great question. Um, and again, it'll be unique to a team, but I think, um, you know, I tend to look at it as what I call outward or inward resistance. So that outward is the things that are observable. So um, in meetings, are people focused and engaged in the conversation? Or are they looking at their phones? Do they have their laptops open? Are they um, disengaged and distracted? Do you get eye rolling? Do you get the heavy sighs, you know? Here we go again. Tired of it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, are they physically removing themselves? Um, I had a team that I worked with that... Um, people would just push away from the table and kind of turn and look around. Um, they weren't focused on the conversation. Maybe they're getting up and getting coffee all the time, um, not participating in the discussion, um, turning cameras off on Zoom calls, which I, I think is a tricky one right now because people are so sick of being on video cameras all the time. But when the camera is intended to be on, you know, if we give people a break and say, hey, this is a meeting where you can turn it on or turn it off, it doesn't matter. Just make sure that you're participating. Okay, there are those meetings that I think are helpful for people. Um, but if it's a meeting where the intention is for people to be on camera and they start um, freezing their camera, they just put up the picture, they turn it off, those can be some signs. Um, I think also outward observable behaviors, um, they don't execute as agreed upon. You know, if you if you come to an agreement that this is how we're going to operate and then someone just decides they're not going to do it or they procrastinate, they give excuses like, oh, I got really busy. I was overwhelmed. I totally forgot we were supposed to do this. Um, sorry, I'll do it next time. Next time comes and they don't do it. Um, complaining to people. You know, um, we've seen this, Alex, so many times that people walk out of meetings feigning agreement and alignment. And then as soon as they get down the hall out of earshot, they're rolling their eyes and complaining to someone that I can't believe we have to do this. So I think those are things. The the tougher ones um, maybe are those inward cues that um, people go quiet, um, their body language changes, maybe their shoulders kind of get depressed a little. Um, there's, you know, as a coach, you're trained to listen and pay attention to people in very specific ways. So some of the things that I look for um, will be pace of speech, um, language, word choice, breathing, which may sound really weird, but when I'm on a, a phone call with someone and we're working through some sort of change, um, when their breathing starts getting kind of heavy, that can mean one thing. If their breathing gets really shallow and quiet and they're not saying much, that's another sign. And so it might just be, hey, I want to check in with you. I notice a different element in your energy, or I noticed 
you know, you're kind of breathing fast or you're speaking really quickly when we talk about this, or you've gone totally silent. Some of those things that they're observable, but they're more kind of inward to the person because they're focused inward. How am I going to deal with this? Do I agree with it? What do I say? Um, is, those is are more, sorry, Carl, is that more like stress related, stress induced, or is it, uh, I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I think it kind of goes back to some of the reasons for resistance to change. Do I agree with it? Am I bought into it? How is this going to affect me? Sometimes people go quiet um, and, and their breathing can change and get more shallow when they're really focused on how am I going to navigate this? Or I don't agree with it and I'm afraid to speak up in this moment and say something because everyone else seems to get it and I don't. It can be a question of, am I on the same page as other people? You don't really know until you check in. So when I notice a shift in someone's demeanor, you know, if they if they typically operate a certain way and then we're talking about change and talking about the action plan for it and setting milestones or checking in on progress and their demeanor changes significantly, even quietly, they don't necessarily have to speak up. It doesn't have to be really obvious. I try to pay attention to that so that I can either check in with them in the moment or I can follow up with them separately. Just again, taking a read on it. So like for instance, um, say you were in a meeting where uh, your customers were introducing a change to vendor protocols or um, testing protocols or something like that. And you have three or four people in a room and someone who is normally participating in the conversation goes a little quiet or kind of shrugs their shoulders and disengages in some way. Um, you know, sometimes it furrows the brow or crinkles up the nose or chews on their lip a lot, you know, things like that. It might be body language signs like that. You can say, hey, Sarah, I noticed when we talked about this, you seemed a little frustrated or you kind of had a reaction, a look on your face that makes me think maybe you have different ideas or you have another view or perspective on this. Is there anything you're thinking that you can share? You can say something like that in, in the conversation, or you could follow up afterwards, again, depending on the person. Um, it's a way to invite conversation. It's a way to let people know that debate um, and dissent is okay. It's healthy because you need to get all perspectives in order to execute whatever that change is going to be. Um Part of the key of noticing and calling out someone's demeanor, a shift in demeanor, or what you're noticing is making sure you're using a neutral tone and that you're coming from curiosity. Because if if instead of saying, hey, Sarah, I noticed kind of a reaction there. Do you, do you have some ideas? Is there something that you can share with us that you're thinking right now? Very different tone than, Sarah, you look like you're not on the same page as us. What, what's going on? Care to share? It's a similar question, but it's a very different tone. Yeah, and so thinking about tone and making sure you're inviting people. Um, one thing that uh, a model that I think is really useful, it's from Peter Block, fantastic management consultant. He has these five conversations that uh, you can Google, find online, five or six conversations. One of them is called the conversation of dissent, where you're specifically breaking people up into smaller groups and asking them to think about what do I disagree with about what we're doing here? And it gives people license to disagree publicly and then to come back and say, what is my dissent or what is my concern? 
which is brilliant because then you're also inviting people to help solve it. If this is what we're concerned about, or if this is what you disagree with in terms of what we plan to do, let's discuss it now before we head off down that path so we can think about proactively, how do we adjust for that? Um, Inviting dissent is is just a fantastic way to get resistance to change out on the table and give people permission to talk about what their concerns are. Right. And, and so I think, you know, based on everything you said so far, I mean, my take from it is obviously that change can be actually pretty costly for any organization, whether you're a small organization or, a, you know, a big organization. And it's, it's cost not just in terms of dollars, so to speak, uh, but I think, you know, you know, we have to give consideration to, you know, retention rates, for example. Am I going to be losing talent? You know, and how much is it going to cost me? And now if I talk dollars, how much is it going to cost me now to go out there, recruit the same talent or better talent, right. agents, get them on board, train them, you know, and, and that takes time. It's not uh, um, something that's uh, particularly inexpensive, uh, so to yeah. speak. I, I think the other thing, of course, is, you know, just, you know, is the productivity, there's efficiency, but in general, just the goodwill of your team. How happy are they? Yeah. Uh, and all of those things, it's a little bit hard maybe to put a dollar value on that, uh, so to speak. Um, but losing people like that can be a big deal. Yeah. And hurt you more than you think. You know? Yes. You think, oh, you know, this guy's got these particular skills. Oh, I can recruit for that. But you can't, maybe the attitude, maybe the number of years that they've been there for, the way they work, the way they fit yeah. into the company culture and so forth. These are not that easy to recruit for. And sometimes you need to no. build into that. So you could lose yes. years from that perspective. Yes, absolutely. And they say the average cost of replacing um, uh, an employee is one and a half times their total annual comp. So, you know, if you think about it, if you've got a, an $80,000 a year employee and they decide, you know what, I'm tired of this change. Um, I want someplace that's more settled, that has more structure, that knows what they're doing and they take off. It's typically going to cost you $120,000 then to replace them because you've got lost productivity. You have other employees who are struggling to take on that work. You have recruitment costs. You have the downtime, the lag of productivity, as you were saying. And then if you go through a recruiter, you know, you have those fees and then onboarding time to get them up to yeah. speed. So one and a half times someone's total annual comp is a lot to pay um, for not having brought someone along for change. I mean, there are lots of reasons people resign, yeah. but if it's connected to change and not feeling like they're part of it and that they're acknowledged and valued and contributing, that's a big price tag. And it's it's one and a half times your comp for each individual. Yes. So if you've got exactly. you know one person leaving five, if you've got five people leaving, <laughs> right, it's right, really expensive. Right. right. So you know again now. So imagine now I'm a lab now. I've I've this, I'm a business owner. I've decided you know I'm going to go ahead with this automated solution. It's the right uh, decision for my business, which it is. And you know there's so many great benefits that that come with it. But you know. I'm that astute leader again, and I've, I've maybe listened to this episode and, and, and so forth. And I understand that, you know, I've got to bring the, the people along in terms of the journey. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I understand that it's going to create change and, and, and so forth. And so in that respect, if you were now advising that leader, mm -hmm. what advice would you give them to ensure that it's a successful um, yeah. mission? Yeah, I believe in simplicity um, and really clear structures when you're moving someone through change or moving a team through change. Um, and there's a model that I've shared with you. I, I share it with almost all of my clients because it has so many different uses. 
um, for navigating change, whether it's on an individual, a team, or an organizational level. The, the model is called managing complex change. Um, and if you're able to pull it up, um, uh, attempting it to would be great. <laughs> if if you can't, I'll I'll speak yeah. to it. So um, there are five core elements. The first is vision. The second is skills. The third is incentives. The fourth is resources, and the fifth is an action plan. And you can post this. You know, if, if it's not coming up now, um, you can post it, or I'll post it on my website so people can see it. Um, and the notion is that when you have these five elements, vision, skills, incentives, resources, and an action plan, you can affect change more readily and productively than if you're lacking them. And the idea is that if you're missing any one of these, there's an emotional um, or mental or organizational reaction that occurs. So for instance, if you don't have a clearly defined vision, um, you're likely to uh, have people experience confusion. They'll ask the questions of, okay, so why are we doing this? Where are we going? What's the intended outcome? Um, and th there we go. So All across right. the top, a while. great, thank you. So across the top are those five elements that are essential to get to change. So you see where they're blocked out. If we're missing vision and people don't know the what and the why and the and the how, um, why is this important to me? You get confusion. You can also get a bit of disengagement there. If people don't really feel like that vision is meaningful and makes sense. So it's critical that upfront before you even, you know, start taking action that you've defined where you want to go and what that looks like. What does success look like? And Carol, so, thank you. sorry to interrupt you, but can I just, just stress here, because I think sometimes people might think about vision and some people might get a little bit nervous, you know, because vision would suggest, oh, yeah, yeah this big fancy uh, state. grand plan. But to your point, it's really just, you know, the roadmap. It's the simplicity. Yes. Why are we doing it? And, and, and yes. so nothing yes. more than that, nothing too complicated. Yes. So to, to bring it to maybe a more personal level, the vision could be for an individual. Um, I'd like to move into a vice president level position within the next three years. That's my vision. That's where I want to be. Okay, great. Or it could be for a laboratory. Um, we want to implement this automation process so that we can have our turnaround within 24 to 48 hours versus a week getting back to a patient or a client or whatnot. Um, and what will that produce? If we can do that, it'll give us a competitive advantage. It'll help cut down on costs, you know, all of the benefits that one might imagine. So if that's the vision, um, you have to clearly define it. What does success looks like? look like. Um, skills is the next key element. So it's one of the things that that uh, drives up fear. What if I don't have the skills? If people don't feel that they have the experience, knowledge, or competency in order to execute that change and be effective, they get anxious. And so we're back in that fear state. What if I fail? What if I can't do it? What if this is too hard for me? What does that mean for me? Because ultimately, you know, work is tied back to our identity and our livelihood. Um, if we don't have incentives, it's the what's in it for me. And that's an important part of the vision, um, being able to express to the organization the why. Why are we doing this? What will this produce? What will it make possible for us? Also, from an incentive standpoint, 
People do their work for different reasons. Some may see themselves excelling and progressing up into higher level positions. Some want to contribute in a, in a certain way. Um, you know, having conversations with people one-on-one -on -one to understand what are they motivated by and looking for how does this vision and this plan connect to something meaningful for them? That can be really important. It's also about money. It's also about acknowledgement. So knowing what's important to to get someone engaged and committed to that change process. Um, if I may also, Carol, here, just maybe interject at this point, yeah. also because a lot of times the um, automated solution will take over from very you know, tedious, uh, boring, repetitive tasks uh, that somebody's had to do manually before. And, and you know, these are highly trained, highly capable, you know, very talented yeah. individuals. And so as a result of, let's say, a robot doing those particular tasks, they now have, I think from an incentive perspective, yeah. you can now focus on a lot more value-adding activity, something yes. that can challenge you, something that might need some analysis and, and, and so forth. And therefore, yeah. it's a lot more rewarding and um, yeah. challenging from that perspective, let's say. Yeah, definitely. If we can free you up from these things that consume even if it's two hours of your day, what else could you be doing with those two hours that would really tap your talents, um, draw out your knowledge, help you contribute to the organization, to the business, and be of value to your customers or to your patients? Um, you know, that can be very exciting for people who are in the line of work that that your company serves. Um, you know, resources, um, think about things like, do you have enough people? Do you... Um, uh, sorry, if you don't, I'm going to go back to the incentives one for just a second. If people don't feel incentivized in some way by that change, you tend to get gradual change. So you can see the outcome in the red letters, uh, red words here. Um, that's the typical outcome. Uh, so resources, um, you're asking me to implement something and I don't have the training. I don't have the tools. I don't have the budget for it. Think of resources in that standpoint. Um, if you don't have that, people get frustrated, especially if they're bought into the change because they want to make this happen, but they don't have what they need to execute. So you get frustration. The action plan piece, um, sometimes people mistake a vision or a direction uh, with an action plan, setting up really clear milestones and, and defining what are we going for, by when do we need to achieve it, who owns it or who's involved with it. Defining that action plan clearly so that people know this is my role, this is Bob's role, this is Sue's role. Um, it helps people stay on track with it. And then it gives you that opportunity to check in, get status updates. Everyone knows what they're responsible for reporting back on. Um, and then they know maybe, oh, I have an idea. I could help Bob with that. So by having a clear action plan, the what by when, owned by whom, defined, you can help bring a team together. Without, th without that, you get what they call in this model false starts. I may run off in one direction thinking I should do this because it'll be a value, and then I hit a roadblock, or I haven't thought through consequences, or, or the context, or the circumstances, or who should be involved. Um, so change for a lab, change for a team, change for a larger um, segment of an enterprise if you engage your people in that action planning process, they'll also take greater ownership. You know, if I'm contributing to the plan for something, I want to see it be successful. I want to see my teammates be successful. So you have a, a higher degree of accountability, intrinsic accountability in your team, if they've been invited to participate in that process. 
Um, so I use this model quite a bit, not just for driving change, but also for creating vision, creating action plans up front. Um, if people, you know, if you start seeing those signs of resistance that we talked about earlier, this is a great document to put down on a table in front of that person or that group and say, hey, let's look at these words in red. Which of these are we experiencing? And take a vote on it. Are we experiencing more than one? Many times in a team environment, we are. And so then the question becomes, which is giving us the greatest pain point? Let's rank the pain that we're experiencing from these missing elements so that then we can have an action plan to tackle them. Sometimes it's just communications. Sometimes it's other bumps in the road. Um, but this can be a great model to use to check in with the team and figure out where are we and how are we not just executing the deliverables, but how are we feeling about it? Where are we mentally, emotionally? Are we losing a connection to this change? Are we getting frustrated? Do we feel anxious? How do we rally around each other to, to address what's missing and plug it in? Um, and I think sometimes when people see a model like this, it normalizes what their experience is. Um, and very often around skills and anxiety, that's where sometimes you see people holding back because it can be tough for some folks to acknowledge, hey, I don't know that I have the skill set to do this. Um, it's sort of like outing yourself that maybe I'm incompetent or maybe I lack knowledge. And that's for many people, that's an uncomfortable place to be. For other people, um, they might feel more comfortable saying, I have no idea what I'm doing with this. I need some help. Who's out there who can help me? So having a model with language already identified can open up the conversation, both to creating a plan for change as well as addressing what's missing. And absolutely. And I think, you know, having something like this just makes things easier. To yeah. Do. And all yeah. the points that you need to consider to have a successful transition in that respect. Mm -hmm. So, because um, I've, I've said before, you know, it's not enough to have a great system or a great solution and, and, and so forth. We must have a, I guess any solution in reality has to be multifaceted. And, yes. uh, you know, the system has to work nicely, has to fit the lab, uh, so to speak. But then we also have to take into account, obviously, the um, the people, because in reality, you know, they're the, the reasons why a system fails or, or whether it's successful. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Fundamentally, I mean, that's just the, the crux of it. And I think, you know, whatever industry you're in, whether we're in, in you know, the science industry, whether we're in confectionery, whatever it may be, right. fundamentally, all boils down to um, to the team and to people. Yes, your execution is only going to be as good as the quality of your people and their commitment. Correct. Yeah. So, Carol, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. You were, like I said, a very different guest that we've had. Uh, I'm happy to help. <laughs> it's <is> good. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can be of any assistance to you or your customers or your vendors, you know, please let them know that they can reach out. I'd, I'd be happy to help in whatever way I can. And thank you for thinking of me. This has been fun.